How do you distinguish a genuine bill from a counterfeit? How do you tell what's real American dollars versus a counterfeit? Well, experts will tell you, you need to study the real thing so that you can learn the distinguishing marks that validate its authenticity. You see, it's a waste of time to study all the different kinds of counterfeit bills out there. There's all kinds of ways that people try to fake the real thing when all you need to do is study the real thing. So take our $20 bill for example. What are some of its distinguishing marks of authenticity? Well, the first step the experts will tell you is you need to touch the bill. You see, currency isn't printed on regular 20-pound bright white paper. It has a unique cotton linen blend. It's made from 75% cotton and 25% linen. There's also areas on the bill that have raised print to give it texture. So when you touch the bill, you will feel the texture on the surface. You will feel that it feels different than regular printer paper. It has a type and a feel that is difficult to replicate and to counterfeit. The second step is to tilt the bill. See, the, the new uh, bills that are in uh, circulation right now have color-shifting numerals. So the 20 in the lower right-hand corner of a $20 bill will change color from copper to green as you tilt the bill. And finally, you want to check it with light. To the left of Andrew Jackson's portrait is a security thread that reads USA 20, and it has a small American flag. So if you hold it up to the light, you can see that security strip. The thread is visible from the front and the back because it is embedded into the layers of the bill. Also, on the right-hand side of Andrew Jackson's portrait is a watermark. The watermark is visible from the front and back, not because it's printed, but because it's embedded into the layers of the paper. And when you hold it up to the light, you can see the watermark show. You see, the U.S. Treasury Department designs and prints currency with all of these distinguishing marks so that we would know the difference between genuine and counterfeit currency. It gives us a standard to know what is actually legal tender for all debts, public and private, versus what's a useless piece of paper pretending to be the real thing. And learning to distinguish between genuine and counterfeits isn't just limited to currency. We do this with all kinds of things because we want to know what is the real thing. Now, if you've been with us over the last couple of months, you know that we are in a series called Transformed as we slowly walk through Romans chapter 12. In Romans 1 through 11, Paul lays out gospel doctrine, chapter after chapter of Christian belief. All the things that Christian believes are laid out in Romans 1 through 11. And then when you come into chapter 12, there's a shift. See, Paul now begins to lay out how gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. In other words, Paul is saying what we believe should change the way we live. See, when our beliefs get rooted deep down into our souls, it begins to transform our character and the result is new behaviors. One way to view Romans 12 is Paul's list of distinguishing marks of authenticity. See, not only does Romans 12 give us an ethical framework for how to live, it also gives us a picture of the authentic Christian life. And they're two sides of the same coin. Now, to be clear, no one 
lives this out perfectly. That's why Paul begins Romans 12 by calling us to remember the mercies of God. You remember that at the very beginning. Paul is saying you cannot forget that this whole thing is a gift of God's grace. But that said, we are to strive with everything that we have to live out these distinguishing marks. Not merely to believe them in theory, but to live them in practice. Such that if someone were to see our lives and know the the beauties of Christian doctrine, they could say, this is a real Christian. They have the distinguishing marks of authenticity. Now this morning, we're looking at a small section of Romans 12. We're looking at verses 15 to 16. And in these two verses, Paul gives six commands. The first, rejoice with those who rejoice. Then weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own sight. Now, what do all of these commands have in common? None of them are possible without the distinguishing mark of humility. You see, one of the authentic marks of Christianity is that Christians are humble. And that kind of Christian humility will work itself out in different ways. So here's where we're going this morning. Paul is calling us to a life of humble sympathy, humble unity, and humble self-awareness. You see, a humble sympathy will look to um, enter into the feelings of others. A humble unity will look to bind ourselves together despite our differences for a common purpose. And a humble self-awareness will help us see who we really are. Not to build ourselves up, but to make much of Christ. So let's begin together in verse 15 to see humble sympathy. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Now, on the surface, this is a very straightforward command. I mean, it's not difficult to understand the meaning. It's just right there, plain in front of us. We are to enter into the rejoicing and weeping, the highs and lows with others. And we have a great English word for this. It's called sympathy. It comes to us via Greek roots. Sympathy is constructed from the Greek prefix sim, meaning together, and pathos, referring to feelings or emotions. And when you put them together, sympathy means together with feelings. Sympathy is used when a person shares the feelings of another. You see, a sympathetic person has an emotional capacity margin to enter into and share the feelings of others. Now remember, this command comes after what Paul said in Romans 12, 9. You remember what he said? Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. And it becomes kind of a controlling verse for the rest of Romans 12. You see, genuine love isn't stoic. It's not distant. Rather, genuine love identifies with others and enters into their experiences and their emotions. So that kind of love drives us to laugh together, sing together, and cry together. Genuine love compels us to identify and feel solidarity with others. It's not difficult to intellectually understand the meaning of this verse, but it's difficult to actually do it. Why? Now think about it. 
when someone is rejoicing, there's something that causes it, right? He or she has been successful at something or maybe something good has happened. And when we hear it, when we hear of the cause or the reason of their rejoicing, something often happens on the inside. Now, because we're all socially savvy, even though we might feel some bitterness starting to percolate on the inside, we fake a smile, don't we? We say the right things, but on the inside, jealousy and envy start to take root. I mean, am I alone in this? I'm not the only one in the room who this happens to. Now, we start to think in our minds, why did that happen to her? He doesn't deserve that. Of all the people, you've got to be kidding me. Seriously, I'm the one who deserves the raise. That should have been me. Where's my recognition? Why do all the good things happen to other people? Do you feel that? Do you see that envy, jealousy, bitterness starting to rise to the surface? Because our natural disposition is not to rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, what about weeping with those who weep? Now, on one hand, this might seem a little easier because generally speaking, when we see someone weeping, when we see someone going through hard times, there's kind of a natural pity that comes for those people. Now, certainly there are, there are people who are so hardened in their hearts with, with, with such an emotional stunting that nothing ever moves them towards compassion. But this is the exception that proves the rule. But that's not really what Paul is talking about here. He's not calling us towards shallow sentimentality or even pity for one another. Paul is calling us towards sympathy. And sympathy always goes beyond sentimentality. Sympathy enters into the feelings of another image bearer. Both rejoicing and weeping are meant to convey something deeper than a flippant congratulations or a mere offering of condolences. No, no, these words, rejoicing and weeping, these are deep words. These are meaningful words. Sentimentality, empty words, those stay on the surface level where sympathy goes deeper and enters in. Now, to do that is going to require an emotional investment on our part. Hear me. Hear me when I say that. An emotional investment. And that word investment, I'm using it strategically because it's a financial term. And when it costs us money, we feel it. This is going to cost us personally. It's going to take something from you. It's going to be inconvenient. And right there is the problem. Rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep requires the death of our pride. Simply put, the reason why rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep is so difficult for us is because we are too absorbed with ourselves to sympathize with others. Our sin turns us in onto ourselves so that we are self-centered, self-focused, and self-preoccupied. So sometimes we don't sympathize because we're wrapped up in ourselves and our plans and what we've got, in, got going on. And we've got blinders on to the, to the people all around us to even notice their joy and suffering. Sometimes we're hypercritical of people's emotions. We're so busy analyzing and pointing out their excessive emotions or reasons why they shouldn't be feeling the way they feel. And it enables us to keep 
distance. Sometimes, like we've said, we're jealous, we're envious, we're resentful, and therefore we don't sympathize. And all of these responses are sinful, and they stem from a self-centered pride. Now let me say this. There are other reasons that make emotional connectivity difficult, okay? Sometimes we can't enter in because we're in the thick of it. We're presently suffering. We're the ones weeping. Our own suffering has brought about a level of self-preservation that keeps us from adding any additional emotional freight to our train, lest we wreck. Sometimes we've experienced emotional trauma in our past from broken relationships. We've got father wounds and mother wounds and relational wounds. And those have had an impact on our emotional health. And if that's you, I want you to hear me. Every eye, look at me. If that's you, your emotional brokenness is not sin. It's not. It's not sin. There's an inability to enter in due to brokenness. And that brokenness is in need of care and healing. Now hear me. It's okay to not be okay. We are going to get broken in the walk of life. But I want you to know this. There is healing in Christ, even for emotional brokenness. And there is care through the church. You can walk in healing. And if that's you, I would love to have that conversation about where the road to recovery begins. It's okay to not be okay. Let's just not stay there. We don't have to stay in our brokenness. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about a prideful unwillingness to take the focus off of ourselves to genuinely love another person. Now friends, taking the focus off yourself to genuinely love another person is impossible on your own. It's not just difficult, it's impossible. And here's why. Romans 12 comes after Romans 11. We can't rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep in a distinctly Christian way unless we've been born again. It's the only cure for the selfishness of sin. New birth is the only cure for the problem of self. That's why the gospel is not about how bad people become good or even how good people become better. The gospel is not titled From Good to Great. The gospel is not a self-help book on how to modify behaviors to become a better version of ourselves. No. The gospel is the good news that in Christ we are regenerated, reborn, made new, made alive in Christ. It's the only cure for the self-preoccupied, the self-infatuated, and the self-exalting person. Because in our sinful nature, we tend to think about our needs and our interests above others. We are the center of our universe and other people's joys, other people's sorrows cannot be entertained because they don't elevate me. They don't interest me. They don't concern me and my world. 
But here's what happens when we come to believe in the gospel. In the gospel, we see a better person to be preoccupied with. In Christ, we see someone who is actually worthy of our infatuation. In Christ, he's the only one worthy of our exaltation. You see, Christian humility is not merely not exalting yourselves. It's not merely not lifting yourselves up. It's not merely only thinking of yourself. It is that. But distinctly Christian humility is a result from our faith in Christ. Pastor John Piper puts it this way. The Christian alternative to self-preoccupation and self-infatuation and self-exaltation is Christ-preoccupation and Christ-infatuation and Christ-exaltation. Faith is being self-forgettingly satisfied with Christ. I love that sentence. Faith is being self-forgettingly satisfied with Christ. Faith is turning from self to Christ as our all in all. So humility is not something merely added to faith. It's fruit grown from faith. So Seven Mile Road, here's how that happens. By grace, through faith, we come to see Jesus as our only hope from our endless self-preoccupation and self-worship. And when we are self-forgettingly satisfied in Christ, we are able to extend a humble sympathy. Faith in Christ sets in motion a real transformation that causes us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, did you notice in this command, Paul didn't simply command against the negative. You hear me on that? He didn't say, do not envy or don't be hardened against people's sorrow. Those are commands against the negative. What does Paul do? Paul goes further. Christian love goes further. He says positively rejoice and weep. He commands the positive. It's not merely enough to guard against the negative. Paul says you must go the extra mile to rejoice and weep. You need to see their joy as your joy, their sorrow as your sorrow. You need to so identify with them that their success is not just their success, it's your success enabling you to rejoice. You need to see their heartache not as just their problem, but as your heartache so that you enter into their experience. Now, obviously, we have, we've got to do this with some discernment. So let me offer a quick word of caution. We need to be discerning here. We can't rejoice with things that shouldn't be rejoiced. We can't lament over that which is not lamentable. We need to set up good boundaries and not be so overwhelmed and taken with the emotional life of others that we become emotionally healthy. That would be going to this far other extreme. And often, we love to... To, to highlight those cautions, to highlight those extremes as our excuse for not going deep with others. But that is simply an excuse. That is not what Paul is calling us to do. We need to be discerning. We need to be cautious. But we need to enter in. What this does mean is that we have ears that are open and receptive and sensitive to others. So look at me. You can't do all the talking. You need to actually stop talking and listen to other people. You need to give them the presence of yourself, the fullness of your presence. 
We need to ask questions sometimes to draw out their sorrow, to draw out their joy, the things that they're excited about so we can take a real interest in their lives. We need to create the kind of safe places where people will share their pain. This means we've got to go beyond just talking about the headlines, talking about sports, talking about current politics. We've got to go beyond the surface. Now, why is this a distinguishing mark of humility? I mean, of Christianity? Because humble sympathy is impossible to counterfeit. Humble sympathy is not faking excitement while privately harboring bitterness. We aren't offering shallow expressions of concern, but a real Christ-like presence to see another image bearer and say, I am with you. And as our hearts are transformed by the gospel, we will be marked by this kind of humble sympathy. Now, let's keep moving and look at verse 16 to see another mark of authentic Christianity called humble unity. First part of 16, Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Paul says we are to live in harmony with one another. And if you were to translate this phrase word for word, literally it would read this, think the same things towards one another. Or in other words, be of the same mind. Now, if you're saturated with the New Testament and particularly Paul's writings, you're going to know Paul says this a lot. It's almost identical with Paul's appeal in Philippians chapter 2 to be of the same mind and of one accord. Paul says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He'll say something similar in Romans 15, 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and accord with Christ Jesus. And again in 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. And each of these verses uses the same Greek word for being of the same mind, living in harmony and agreeing with one another. And that makes sense too, right? If we're tracking Paul's argument from Romans 12 too, what does he say? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? Renewal of your mind. So that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. See, the power of the gospel is not merely that we are saved from the penalty of sin. It is, praise God, but it's also that we're being transformed from the effects of sin. So here's what happens. Our individual minds are being transformed and renewed so that they start to align with the purposes and will of God. And as our individual minds are being transformed and conformed to the purposes of God, our whole community, the, the, the minds of our collective community will also be transformed according to the purposes and will of God. See, we should share the same basic convictions and concerns. Why? Because our convictions and concerns are not self-driven, but Christ-given. They're Christ-given. Now, this doesn't mean uniformity on every single thing. Uniformity is not unity. Have you noticed, have you looked out in God's creation? Is God a uniform God? Is he doing the same thing 
Is he creating the same creation every single place? No. There's beauty and diversity in God's creation. So it's the same in the church. We're not all to look the same, dress the same, act the same, vote the same, and do everything the same. The same. Unity is a harmony among diversity. So yes, there's room for diversity of thought and opinion on secondary and tertiary issues. There's room for differences on how we practically live out the mission of God. But look at me, on the most biggest, pressing, primary issues, on our deepest convictions, on our foundational doctrines, we are to be of the same mind. There's supposed to be a harmony that allows us to live and work together. Pastor Alistair Begg says it this way. Now, he would do this with a Scottish accent, but I'm not going to do that this morning. He says this, when it comes to the issues of the gospel, when it comes to issues of truth, when it comes to matters of the main things being the plain things, we must live in absolute harmony. See, I think harmony is a great way to translate the phrase, be of the same mind. Think about what goes on in harmony. In this analogy, God is the composer. He's the one writing the score. He's the one who determines the melody of the song. He dictates the most important driving force of the song. And according to God's design, what do we get to do? We get to supply the harmony. Differing notes working together to create a beautiful sound that complements one another and really builds upon the melody. See, our diversity doesn't work against harmony. No, you need diversity to create harmony. And that's why we must remain humble. We can't be trying to raise our voices above another. Now, I'm not making up this connection between unity and humility. Look what he goes on to say in verse 16. After he says, live in harmony with one another, what does he say next? He says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Just think about that word haughty, how elevated it sounds. It sounds so important, so so arrogant to be haughty. Paul is saying, do you know what disrupts harmony? Pride and self-importance, that self-elevation of haughtiness disrupts and kills harmony. Pride and self-importance can't disrupt harmony if we think we should be the ones writing and driving the melody. See, when you think too highly of yourself, you think everything would just be better if people would just do it the right way, also known as my way. That's haughtiness. It's an arrogance. It's a superiority. It's thinking highly of yourself, so high that you now have a disdain as you look down on others you consider to be beneath you. And Paul is saying our harmony is not possible if we are haughty and unwilling to associate with the lowly. Now, what does this mean on a practical day-to-day basis? It means if we're humble enough, we will be willing to ask people how they see something. See, in our pride, we think we know everything. But in humility, as we strive towards unity, we will ask other people what they, how they see it because we might actually learn something. It means drawing other people into the conversation instead of using conversations as an opportunity for your own pontification. It means we see all people the same and treat them the same. It means we aren't supposed to pursue some people for the advantage they can give us while snubbing others who seem like they have nothing to offer us 
and never giving them the time of day. We're not supposed to be shaking hands with one person while glancing over their shoulder to find someone more important to talk to. It means that there's never a task beneath you and there's never a person who isn't worth your time. Martin Luther said the for the Christian, there should never be anyone above changing diapers. It means we're willing to interact with people on different social and tax brackets. Now, one of the things I love about Seven Mile Road is that we have people in this church right now with PhDs and people without GEDs. We have people with long CVs and people who don't even know what a CV is. We have people with investment accounts and people who live paycheck to paycheck, and that's by God's design. We are organized not by affinity or tax brackets, but by the cross of Christ because at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. There's supposed to be a diversity of believers, men and women, young and old, a plurality of ethnicities, a range of socioeconomic statuses, an assortment of educational backgrounds, a variety of professions such that there is no logical reason for why all these people come together except for the fact that it's Jesus who welcomes all who want to lay down their life and follow him. If a non-believer comes into this room and sees all the diversity here, the only thing that would make sense to them is that every single one of these people keeps talking about Jesus. Friends, when we live in a humble unity, it becomes an unmistakable mark of authentic Christianity that cannot be faked or counterfeited. So now we've seen Paul outline a humble sympathy and a humble unity Let's look at the last phrase in verse 16 to see a humble self-awareness. Paul finishes here. He says, never be wise in your own sight. Never be wise in your own sight. Paul finishes this section with yet another attack on pride and self-importance. You see, if knowledge is information, wisdom is the capacity to use and apply that knowledge in a skillful way. Martin Lloyd-Jones defines it this way. Wisdom is the power, the faculty, and the ability to put what you know to good and worthy ends. To put what you know, that that knowledge, to good and worthy ends. See, the Bible speaks about wisdom often. In fact, the book of Proverbs tells us that the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. Now, we spent a summer a few years back looking at the book of Proverbs, and here's how we defined the fear of the Lord. To fear the Lord means that God is your highest priority, your deepest love, and your foundational trust. Let me say that again. God is your highest priority, your deepest love, and your foundational trust. In other words, God has your highest attention. He has your deepest affection, and he has your most faithful allegiance. True wisdom means that your life is rightly aligned with the Lord so that there's no higher priority in your life than God. He is your deepest love and he is the foundation, the bedrock of your trust. And that's the beginning of wisdom because everything else builds on that unshakable wisdom. It becomes a strong foundation to build the rest of your life. And when you have that fear of the Lord, it leads to a self-awareness that's rooted in the gospel. So here's how biblical self-awareness works. You see yourself rightly because on one hand, you have an incredible identity that says, I am beautifully and wonderfully made in the image 
of God. And this leads to a proper sense of worth and dignity. You see, there's so much in our culture and world today that tries to find a self-awareness that's rooted from within. Just look inside yourself. Find the real you. And biblical Christianity has nothing to do with that kind of nonsense. If you want a lasting, meaningful, truly dignifying self-worth and identity, you need to look outside of yourself at the God who made you. Look at me right now. Every single person in this room is created in the image of God. All his worth, all his value, all his dignity embedded into you. That's why you should be able to stand in front of the mirror and look at yourself and say, I am beautifully and wonderfully made. That's where a true sense of worth and dignity comes from. So hold that thought there. Here's the second thought of biblical self-awareness. You know you're created in the image of God with all the worth and dignity, and yet at the same time, you know you failed to live up to that image. Real self-awareness sees that you really have sinned, and it comes with a deep recognition that you've sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, a biblical, humble self-awareness is not just endlessly growing to know yourself so that you can promote and position yourself. We see that all the time in our culture. This is a self-oriented self-awareness, and there is no shortage of self-help books and personality profiles to help you look on the inside so that you can empty out the negative or think better, live better, or live your best night life now, all of which is garbage. No, a humble self-awareness is rooted in the gospel and knows that your pathway towards true wisdom, towards true joy comes only through the cross. So self-importance, self-exaltation, self-preoccupation, self-centeredness, a life built on self-promotion is the definition of foolishness. It's the definition of foolishness. So at the same time, when you come to a humble self-awareness that's rooted in the gospel, Not only do you know you're made in the image of God, full of worth and dignity. Not only do you know that you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But third, you know that you come, that you are loved beyond your wildest imagination because you know that God the Father sent God the Son to live for you and die for you. And when you grasp that reality, all pretense dies. All self-importance dies. All self-promotion dies. All notions of self-sufficiency die. A person with a humble self-awareness knows that he or she doesn't have the monopoly on good ideas. They invite in other people's opinions. They really listen to others when they speak because they realize that everything they have is a gift from God. Friends, this kind of humble self-awareness is an unmistakable mark of authentic Christianity. Because when you know that you are full of dignity and worth, when you know that you fall short of that, but God loves you so much that he would die for you, all the notions of self-importance die right along with it. And it gives you a true self-awareness to never be wise in your own sight. And that is an unmistakable mark of authentic Christianity. 
Now, friends, as we close, I want to take a step back for a minute. You see, everything about Romans 12 is meant to both humble and challenge us. Did you know nothing on this list is optional? God doesn't say, hey, pick your favorite verses, write them on a coffee mug, make them the verses of the year and run with them. No, this verse is meant to challenge every single one of us at every single level. God doesn't lower the bar of ethics so that we're able to hop over them. No, he does something much better. First, he accomplishes the fulfillment of this perfect ethical life in the life of Jesus. That's why his life is just as important as his death. Yes, we needed Jesus to die for us. Yes, we needed Jesus to rise for us. But listen to me, we also needed him to live for us. His active obedience to perfectly fulfill this ethical life of love is given to us on the cross. It's called the great exchange. His perfect life for our imperfect life. His righteousness for my unrighteousness. His love for my selfishness. His patience for my impatience. His generosity for my greed. His genuine love for my hypocrisy. His humility for my pride. His sympathy for my apathy. His care for the lowly for my self-promotion. His goodness for my evil. His service for my slothfulness. His prayer life for my utter laziness. His peace for my vengeance. Friends, Jesus lives the life we have utterly failed to live. And then he gives us his perfection in exchange for our sinfulness as he died for our sin in our place on the cross. And if that weren't enough, in the abundance of his mercy and grace, he begins to change us from the inside out so that we can actually really start to live like him. It's his righteousness and holiness that begins to move through us and change us. So that time when you hold your tongue, even though you've got a really good comeback, guess what? That's the spirit of the living God changing you. That time when you tell the truth, even though the lie is more convenient, that's the truth of Jesus changing you. That time when you want to feel envy, when you hear of another's rejoicing, but instead you enter in. And you rejoice with your sister because she is rejoicing. That's the Lord continuing the work that he began in you. That time when you let the inconvenience of your brother or sister's suffering be okay. You were willing to be interrupted and give them the gift of your presence so that you would just sit there with them in their grief. That's the sympathy of Jesus overriding your inclination towards apathy. That time... When you just let the argument go, because really it's just not that important to win the argument and lose the person. That's the unity, the spirit forming you. That time when you realize that you don't have to have it all figured out and that it's okay to ask for help. That is a God-given self-awareness replacing our faulty assumption that we know everything. Friends, this list in Romans 12 is meant to make us grateful because we know Jesus has already accomplished everything for us on our behalf. It's also meant to humble us because we know that following Jesus is a daily death to self-centeredness and pride. And it's also meant to challenge us so that we would strive to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel and the one who calls us to come and follow him. So Seven Mile Road, let's press on. Let's live with these unmistakable marks of authentic Christianity, a humble sympathy, 
a humble unity and a humble self-awareness. And let's show the world that Jesus is still in the business of changing us from the inside out. Let's pray.